Hello, I'm Anna Walker, and you're listening to the Reader's Digest podcast, in which we navigate the woes and the wonders of modern life, with leading experts on the tools that you need to survive and to thrive in a modern world. In this episode, Eva Makovic speaks to Michaela Thomas, a clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and the author of The Lasting Connection, about how to have a healthy relationship and stay connected to your partner. Hi, Michaela. Thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great honor. Um, So just to give our listeners um, a bit of a background, how long have you been a couples therapist for? Um, Goodness me, I've been a qualified psychologist for over a decade now, and I've been working with couples for about seven years of that. Mm. And how did you get into it? So it's a it's a follow on training. So in order to be able to to do the kind of couples training that I provide, which is the only one that's uh, offered on the NHS because it's evidence based. Otherwise, it's so it's different to relationship counselling. It's also um, in, a, in a kind of therapy where where you can treat mental health conditions at the same time as looking at the relationship distress. So in order to be able to do that, you know, imagine I might be dealing with anxiety or depression in partner one and partner two, and maybe they're on the brink of divorce. So to be able to do that kind of level of couples therapy, you have to be a qualified psychologist or therapist for quite a number of years. So so I trained in that because I wanted to add the extra component. I was already seeing people individually where I thought actually having that partner on board in their anxiety treatment would have been really beneficial because so often when we're anxious and when we're feeling low it's obviously affecting the partner when we're living with them and if there is problems in your relationship we also know that from the statistics around mental health problems is that when you're unhappy in your relationship you yourself are at greater risk of developing mental health problems so there's such a link between your well-being and the well-being of your relationship in both directions. So I thought, actually, this is a, a, a fuller part of the story. So treating both you, your partner and the relationship at once felt like a, a natural progression for me. Yeah, of course. Um, so one of the things that I'm most curious to ask you about is what are some of the most common problems that couples come to you with? Um, I guess... It really varies because when people come to me, it's often because they're looking for intervention. So that's very different to when they're kind of noticing there's some niggles and they might actually be able to prevent further problems. But when people seek out couples therapy, they're looking for problem uh, kind of solutions to their problems. So often they're coming with issues around miscommunication, maybe not understanding each other, struggling to listen to each other struggling with important decisions that they can't see eye to eye on and they just end up in cycles of arguments. They might struggle with their intimacy and that's including both physical intimacy like sex but also touching like cuddling and things like that, feeling that they've drifted apart. But also another element of intimacy is emotional intimacy, maybe feeling that they're not as close anymore, they're not sharing things with each other and they've just gone a bit flat. Um, so those kind of things can come up a lot and I often see couples who are parents of young children, so that can highlight a lot of problems. When you have a child, you can highlight differences in opinion around how to parent your kids, your values might clash, your different personalities might then show up and I kind of realize one of you might be more extroverted, the other one is more introverted. So definitely 
differences of opinion and preferences and values that really can come up into quite major life decisions where they can become deal breakers that these couples struggle to navigate on their own and then needing to see an external third party who can just help facilitate that discussion to help them come to some resolutions. Mm. So usually there are going to be uh, people who have been in a relationship for quite a long while. Yeah, on average, it tends to be uh, people who've been together for, for a while. Um, but the sad statistic about this is that people take on average six years before they seek help for their couple's problems because of the, the amount of stigma and shame that there is around that. You know, I would believe that it's even more so than it is around seeking individual therapy or counselling for yourself. Uh, so there's a lot of resistance around seeking out the help. Uh, so at that point, yes, they could have been together for quite a while and struggled for quite a while as well. What I would hope to see and something I'm lobbying for is to do more of the preventative work that I would get to see people when they're earlier on in their relationship and help to give them relationship skills to provide them with these strategies that will prevent some of these issues from emerging um, especially for big kind of major milestones of your relationship say you're just about to move in together or you're about to get married or you're about to have your first child or your grown-up kids are, are about to leave home and suddenly it's just the two of you again so these kind of major life stresses which which I know that you've been reading about in my book that I talk about as kind of frictions that can cause strain on that connection between couples those are the bits that are people really need to skill up around, we need to learn more about how to handle, how to preempt these these storms on the horizon. And that's something I'm very passionate about, helping people see the storms before they come and get prepared for them, rather than find themselves in, in the middle of the hurricane and then thinking, oh, we're desperate for help now. Sometimes that can be a little bit too little, a little bit too late when they then actually eventually come to me. Some of the patterns might be too cemented to actually unpick and, and repair at that point. Yeah, and I suppose it's such a common issue um, when you're at such an early stage in your relationship where you're just really excited to make that next step and you're not really thinking about any problems that might arise because you're so intoxicated and you know, so in love. And then in hindsight, after a few years of this situation that you've been in, looking back on it, you think, well, maybe I could have used some of these skills and some of this knowledge before I entered this next stage of this relationship. Mm, absolutely. Um, so in your book, you mentioned that as an expert, you can have a gut feeling about whether or not a couple will last. Um, can you maybe reveal some of the telltale signs of whether a relationship is happy or not and what you should look out for, like any red flags that you should really take seriously in your relationship? Mm. I guess there's two parts to that. One is sort of what is the gut feeling that, you know, obviously there are some researchers that claim that they can predict whether or not a couple will last over a sort of a seven year period. Uh, and I don't have a, a love lab like John Gottman talks about in his research. So for me, it's more of a, the, the kind of clinical observation and using questionnaires to measure couple satisfaction. So the second part of, of that that I think is really important to highlight is that how do we know if you're happy? And the happy word is a real trigger for me because I think part of why so many couples are unhappy in their relationships is because they have an unrealistic view on what happiness looks like. Sometimes that's been fed by romantic comedies or you know, just showing that early stage of relationships that you just mentioned when you're so happily in love that you're infatuated. And we think that that is what love is gonna look like long-term. So part of why people are 
actually unhappy is that they're pursuing that happiness to uh, to a very high cost thinking we've now had a fight what's wrong with us maybe we're not meant together we're meant to be together maybe there's something that is you know we're too different so maybe we won't be compatible long term etc so there's a lot of these unrealistic expectations that I think puts strain undue strain on relationships whereas if we had more of a realistic view on actually relationships are hard love is hard and that love progresses of, uh, over the course of you being together the lifespan of your relationship it goes from that strong infatuation love more into a, a calmer more grounded connection where you sort of feel bonding together and that's not as overwhelmingly kind of exciting as the early stages, which may last sort of six to 18 months. So I think I really want to start there, that that could be a big risk factor for your relationship if you're expecting it to feel like it did in the beginning and don't know that the sort of it's like a cooling of the fire a little bit. And that's normal. And then secondly, about the happiness aspect, I think of it more as satisfaction. So when satisfied couples are together, there's a few things we know from the research that they do. It's part of it is that they know each other really well and they keep getting to know each other. They have an interest and a curiosity about what's going on for the other partner and keep asking questions. They feel fond kind of feelings towards each other. They appreciate each other. It's like a foundation of friendship and companionship. They, when they face problems, they tend to turn towards that, towards each other and think, how are we going to deal with this as a team? Rather than saying that you are the problem or you are the problem, they kind of think, ah, here's a problem in front of us. How do we deal with this obstacle? And then they resolve the problems in front of them that are solvable, that they use strategies together, maybe using each other's different strengths as a, as a kind of, as a good team effort together where they can overcome any moments of difficulties in the relationship and then move forwards from that. So they can manage any conflict that shows up their way. And then lastly, that they have a shared meaning, that they can have values together, they can create memories, they can maybe have a family unit together. And that can be obviously family units can look in whichever way you want, but there's a sense of unity here. So togetherness, we have created this meaning that is unique just to us. And it's different to say connection I have with a friend or another person outside of the unit. So if you think about polar oppositing that, there that's the things that people are doing in relationships that probably won't last so very well. So when you are disrespectful of each other, when you're critical of each other, you have hostility, um, you know, you ridicule each other, where you don't solve problems effectively as a team, but instead you blame each other and shame each other for the efforts that are made and you make each other feel like you are the problem. That's probably not an indication of a relationship that's going to be able to weather any storms. It's more like the first storm on the horizon is probably going to break your boat. So a healthy couple that is feeling satisfied with that connection keeps mending their boat, keeps looking after any sort of signs of holes or ruptures and, and keeps kind of maintaining that boat so that it can weather the storms. And then when there's a calm sea going on, they're also really good at being able to appreciate that and show each other gratitude for when actually things are kind of okay, I'm kind of enjoying myself at the moment. So they can deal with the bad and really savor the good. Sure. Um, one concept I found really interesting in your book is um, the flammability of a relationship, as you put it. So um, whether your relationship is so hot that it's in danger of combusting or if it's a cooler one, but then you're at the risk of um, fizzling out after a while. Um, how do you figure out which one you are and what are some of the defining features of those? 
I guess it can be, I mean, if you're reading in the book, which is called The Lasting Connection, I kind of thought about what makes that connection break for some couples and what makes it last for others. And it's not that being a generally hotter couple where we think is sort of fiery, passionate, that that's not necessarily better than if you're a generally cooler couple. It's more about finding sort of the happy medium in between. If you're so fiery that you fight of everything, you know, you're kind of the couple that slam cupboard doors so you throw stuff and you storm out all the time you might then also be the couple who has passionate makeup sex and you kind of feel that you can come back together again but that can be exhausting the amount of, amount of expressed heat you have in the relationship so you might feel that you are very flammable in the sense that it's easy to light a fire at least if you're easy if your conversations to go into full-blown argument and that might mean because there's a lot of reactivity maybe you're very sort of easy to spot things and be triggered by your partner maybe easy to sort of jump to conclusion and yes there can be a lot of passion in that but that is exhausting and it may not feel safe for for the other person if they're less flammable than you for instance they may feel like oh, i'm treading on eggshells when is the next explosion going to come Whereas people equally come to me for seeking help when they're a generally cooler couple, when it's more like, well, we don't really argue too much day to day. We get on fine. We can kind of deal with the kids. But it feels more like a business agenda. We're kind of living at the same address, but we're not really sharing a life together. And it's gone a bit flat. We don't really have any intimacy anymore. And we're fine, but we're more like flatmates. So either of those two extremes is when the fire has gone too hot or the fire has kind of fizzled out so somewhere in the middle i don't know for anyone who's been sort of part of the scouts or whatever is when you sort of feeding the fire with a little bit of air blowing in so that you keep the flame alive and the air you blow in really matters so if you feed your fire with an air of hostility an air of contempt and criticism then eventually that fire is going to be stifled or it's going to catch flames to the point where it burns your house down where if you're feeding things like respect, kindness, compassion, and that's the bit you blow into your relationship, it's much more likely that you can get it down to what I call the glowing embers. You know, that bit there where you think, oh, it's just about right to take out the hot dogs and the marshmallows and they're not going to burn burn to a crisp. That's the bit which I describe as that feels kind of nice. It's not passionate massive and it's also not gone flat, but it's all, oh, it's this sort of, four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, sitting on the sofa together, just hanging around. That's the sort of um, the glowing embers where we can build little memories, doing the small little things that you find pleasant and content together. And that's where I think flammability and assessing how flammable you and your partner are is really important because you might also be wildly different. One of you might be more, much more kind of broad in their emotional range and be like, oh my God, I'm going to all the sort of cylinders turning as soon as, as you get angry, whereas the other one might not show very much emotion at all. And that can also be a contested point for you where you're going to like say something and the other person feels, you're overwhelming me, I can't think because you're, you're just too much. And that can lead into different patterns for them as well where they, the level of expressed emotion can be feeling really unsafe for them. So I think of those three parts as making up the fire triangle the fuel you bring to the fire is the shape of you you know who you are your personality your temperament how flammable you are it's not something you've chosen you know we're all different I'm much more flammable than my husband for instance he's generally cooler but that also means that I have a greater capacity for high intense joy and passion and things like that whereas he's much more measured but also logical and analytical so we can bring our different fuel and actually use that as a team 
So that's the fuel aspect is how, obviously how flammable that is. And then expressed heat is what obviously you can't, without heat, you can't start a fire. And lastly, that the air that you breathe into it is obviously what attitude or atmosphere you have in your relationship. So I think of those three together as really important to see what's going to catch a fire in your house and how dangerous will that fire be once it gets going. But don't be afraid to carry some matches either because you do want to have some heat in your relationship. You don't want the fire to go out. Yeah, sure. Um, So the scenario that you just mentioned um, where the two people in a relationship are the complete opposites. So one is highly flammable and the other one is cooler. Um, What are the chances of that kind of relationship surviving in the long term? Um, Which I guess kind of leads me to a bigger question, um, whether one of the theories, uh, theory of soulmates or the theories of the opposite attracting each other is is the true one or is it just a complete myth and you should pay no mind to them at all yeah it's a big question one that i thought about quite a lot when i was writing one of the chapters and thought about personality and compatibility and connection and how does all work together chemistry you know people can say we had such chemistry from the word go when we met we just clicked and actually the research then says that it's not really about how compatible we are that really matters so if you're fully compatible as you're the same person in every way actually that's not saying you're going to have a greater chance of a lasting connection than if you're able to overbridge your incompatibilities like all the ways you are different with compassion so it's more being able to name and label actually we're different here and that's okay we can accept that So that is more important and more kind of a predictor for long lasting relationship and feeling satisfied than if you married someone or you're in a long term relationship with someone who's just like you. Because if if, if you think about it, I mean, I would hate to be (laughs) married to myself because my husband gives me other strengths and other qualities that I lack in myself. So we can balance each other out. And we know that actually going for a partner who's diverse compared to you, who's different compared to you, can also make for an interesting match. But it's all about how you manage that, how you navigate those conflicts that will inevitably come when you think differently about topics. So as you navigate your preferences, respectful kind of, I don't know, perspective taking for what is important to the other person and how you may not agree. But I've seen plenty of couples who've been so different, but they've found a way to be like a well-oiled machinery, looking to each other's strengths and being aware of each other's weaknesses with compassion rather than belittling each other and blaming each other for it. They're just like, well, we know we're different, but we know that that's their role, that's my role, and we know that we work well together in this way, rather than needing to be, you know, completely the same. Sure. So connection and compassion are really the keys here. Um, how, how do you maintain that, especially in times like these where... The world is just churning at a breakneck speed and we're just so overwhelmed with our careers and, you know, social media, looking after family members, uh, our own health. How do you keep that link with your partner strong? Are there any practical tips you can offer? Mm, It's a really tough one because we know that the modern society has evolved in a way that hasn't actually allowed our brains to 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 keep up with that level of evolution. There's lots of things going on now. If you think in the last sort of 15 years, the, the way that technology has developed in a way that we, we haven't seen that sort of level of exponential growth for a long time. Uh, so it's almost like a, a tech revolution. And that has led to a lot of digital distraction 
And probably one of the most common things I see in my clinic is couples who are struggling with that level of work-life balance where they they don't see their partner enough, they come home late, they might have a long commute. I mean, we now work further away from our homes than we used to because of globalization. We might then also live further away from our support systems than we used to. So if you are a couple that has young kids, there might be more strain on your connection because you don't have maybe the grandparents to come around or aunties and uncles to come around to help with the kids. So that might mean a bigger strain on your connection. So some of these life stresses where we we do live a more fast-paced life, like you mentioned, that there is kind of a lack of simplicity in some ways. That And interestingly, that is something that a lot of couples have told me have been the, the upside or kind of the blessing from the big curse that has been COVID that has forced them to slow down certain things uh, a little bit more. I'm not talking about, you know, finding joy from a lockdown or being stuck with two, three homeschooled kids, but I'm talking about how peeling away some of the maybe not no so necessary social engagements that they have, cutting out a little bit of the commute into the office, has meant that some couples have actually told me that they found more time together in an enjoyable way. Obviously, that, I just want to balance that to the preconceived notion that everyone has had a horrible time. Yes, people have also told me that they've been on top of each other all the time has not been great for their connection because that has meant no space. So it sounds like a fine balancing act of calibrating how much time you have together because not enough time together, your connection is going to be strained and too much time together because that means you have no space for yourself as an individual. You do need space away from your partner and meeting some of your needs outside of the relationship as well with friends, other family members, your own personal interests. So it is a real fine balancing act that I think is hard to do in modern society. So with that reality check first, and let's think about if there's anything practical that couples can do. My top tip that I give to people is to park your phone, to be more conscious of when and where you engage with technology so that you make these things conscious choices. There's nothing wrong with sitting on your smartphone because you might WhatsApp your friends on it, you might be looking on different news sites and things you want to read that's engaging for you. But if that is getting in the way of connection with your partner, like say that you're, you've agreed to have date night and you're sitting and watching a film and both of you are scrolling on your phones at the same time, you kind of ruined an event that 10 years from now, that would not have happened. You would not have been doing other things to the same extent. So I would then think of the kind of setting up a little phone park which if you have older kids, you can engage them in that as well to have family connection where you put your phones in a box. You can even, you know, drill a hole in the side if you want to. You can have your charger cables. So you don't have to panic about them losing energy. So just put them in there, decide when and where they go in and what conditions would allow you to take it out. Like if you're expecting, you know, an emergency call from your from your elderly sick parent, then obviously answer the phone. But some people have even found that having a landline again has been helpful because that means that they can they can be contactable for any sort of emergencies, but they park their phones because it's the scrolling bit rather than anyone they're actually calling. Um, and that can be really helpful to negotiate. What do we do when we are present with each other? So that becomes the more conscious thing that we spend in quality time together. And then when we're not together, then you do what you want with your phone. But maybe having a rule around it, not coming into the bedroom with you. Because um, that can be really helpful to not have it inside the bed. So maybe setting your alarm just outside your bedroom door. You still hear it and actually it's quite good to make yourself get out of bed to go and turn it off. But having the phone in your bed is actually associated with less intimacy in the bedroom. So we want to make sure that you don't have more intimacy with your phone than you do with your partner. Mm. 
And I guess a lot of that, of what you just said, uh, feeds into the concept of mindfulness, uh, which you mention a lot in your book as well. Um, and I feel like it's it's been such a buzzword in the recent years that's been thrown around a lot, um, like on social media by celebrities. And there's been so many books coming out on meditation and spirituality and all of that. And you don't really hear um, about mindfulness uh, in the context of a relationship, doing it as a couple. So I found that really interesting and innovative, the way you sort of put it um, into context. Thank you. And it's, it's something that we, we actually know from research is really helpful because couples who practice mindfulness are less reactive. Like we said about the flammability, that it's actually easier for you to take a moment, take a breath before you maybe answer something that your partner said that was that makes you feel very reactive. So mindfulness doesn't help you feel calm and at ease and content all the time. It just means that you can then be aware of what's showing up for you in that given moment. What's going through my mind as I'm thinking it? What am I feeling? Where is that sitting in my body? What are my urges? And how do I then express that to my partner? But it also helps you to be mindfully aware of what's going on for them. You can be a little bit more observant of watching their facial expression, their posture, what they're trying to say. And it might mean that you can have better conversations then if you're mindfully aware of what's going on for you and on for them, you can then think, actually, I just noticed that you, you're looking really upset. What's going on? If they're coming home and they're slamming cupboard doors and you're just finding yourself getting really irritated by the bad vibes that they're bringing, if you're, you're actually able to be a mindful person in that moment, stepping into some compassion for your partner, you can also say, please, uh, please stop slamming the doors. It's making me get a headache, but I, it looks like you're really upset. You want to talk. So you can still stand up for yourself, but in a mindfully compassionate way. So we don't have to take crap from our partner just because we're practicing mindfulness and compassion. It doesn't mean that we're um, a punching bag, but it means it's easier to step into a version of us that is kind, caring and supportive. And that might be more in line with the kind of partner you want to be. So kind of you on a good day. And that's where I think mindfulness practice is important to kind of debunk as just a uh, kind of a nice feeling to to just relax with it's actually something when you use it in the moment helps you to be more aware of your your reactions and your behavior mm. and I suppose that can also inform um, your intimate life in in some way if if you're struggling um, if you're a couple that's been in a relationship for a while um, it's quite often that people find themselves in a bit of a slump with their sex lives, whether they're, they've fallen into some sort of a routine where it's all become a little bit mundane or they've stopped having sex at all. Um, can that inform um, their sex lives in any way? Absolutely. I and mean, we've got some really nice data on that, on kind of from sex science, that couples who practice mindfulness are able to be more in the present moment in the bedroom. And when you're more in the present moment, that means that you're able to feel more pleasure. You can kind of feel what's going on. Whereas one of the biggest interrupters to sexual intimacy that I would say I see amongst my clients is that the mind has gone somewhere else. You're sort of thinking about work and that thing you have to kind of put on your boss's desk tomorrow or you start thinking about the kids or anything else that worries you. When we know that that actually that wandering mind when you're when you've gone to something that worries you is a huge interrupter for pleasure and arousal. So yeah, I'm not going to feel in the mood anymore because I, I lost the mood. So couples who are able to be mindfully aware and and tune into that pleasure will 
they will feel a greater sense of satisfaction with their sex life, feel more like it's rewarding. And we can also experience the full five senses much clearer when we're tuning into that moment. I can feel your body clearer. I can smell everything. You know, it might be that I can smell the, the, the smell of your perfume or your shampoo. Maybe you're listening to some romantic songs. You know, it's, uh, I have a kind of a long sh- uh, section in that chapter in my book where I talk about mindfully compassionate sex, where you can be really tuned into each other. And that part of that is really important to mention is also having an awareness of is your partner into this? you know respecting their boundaries respecting your own boundaries so without being mindfully compassionate with yourself and your partner it's really hard to kind of know what feels safe to do within the bedroom and that's something that I think is something we we need to reflect more on when it comes to sexual satisfaction over you know years into a relationship because we can often run through the same script do the same stuff have the same dishes on the menu and if you have a mindful awareness of that, you can then have a dialogue about it saying, actually, I would like to try something different or that is not as satisfactory for me as this thing. And having those often awkward conversations can really help. Uh, going back to relationships uh, during lockdown, which you mentioned earlier, and that some couples um, actually f- found it quite beneficial to have some of that extra time to spend together. Um, what about all of the couples that are really struggling with having so much extra time around each other and just starting to feel suffocated? Is there anything you can recommend beyond, you know, just going on like a solitary walk or, or just putting your headphones on for an hour to avoid your partner? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really tricky one because it so depends on the level of space we have. And we know that people who have lower socioeconomic status, you know, might be stuck in a very small space together with a few kids, then, you know, it's really difficult when we don't have enough physical space and we feel really trapped. So the best tip I would give there is just to keep the dialogue going about it, talk about it, say that this is not about you and me, this is about the problem that is pressuring us, you know, down on us. This is the tension that we're facing, that this is not about us as a couple that this is just hard that kind of starting with a reality check that this is just really difficult for everyone at the moment and what can we do to kind of get through day to day and trying to find a way where you can ask for that extra space without it being offensive so saying yeah like you mentioned that actually do go for solitary walks and say that this is not about you or me not wanting to spend time with you but I just need a little quiet time Uh, and that can mean that you negotiate some nights where you do things together and some nights where you might do things apart, say that if you have a particular hobby that you would have previously left the home to go to a dance class or a chess club or whatever it is that you enjoyed before that, where you did have time away from the home and time away from the partner. Maybe trying to find ways to replicate that so you still feel like you as an individual rather than just part of this blob that you've kind of become on the sofa together. So I think that's really important where we then think about this is about quality time as well. So having one date night a week, for instance, when you do something connected, where you're not just plowing through one more series on Netflix, but you're actually thinking, let's do something that we used to enjoy before all of this happened. Can there be an adapted version of that? So if you used to host lots of people what elements of that did you like to do you know maybe it was about putting on some nice uh cocktails and and nice little starters and things like actually can you make that same spread even if you don't have any guests coming because it's still about getting dressed up and putting it all together can you still do that it feels a little bit like going through the motions but trust me it will feel really good um 
So doing sort of adapted versions of what you used to enjoy, maybe doing that only like say once a week, we'll make that extra concerted effort, even though it's difficult. And then maybe once a week we have our own thing, you know, say that one of you has, um, I don't know, a Zoom meeting with a friend playing board games and the other one has, you know, play Scrabble online with their friends. So whatever it might be that you do and to to keep the individuality going as well as as a couple going. Otherwise, it it blends into some sort of grey mesh in between the two where you're constantly on top of each other. And that's not necessarily healthy either. But keep talking about it. This won't be forever. This is not a reflection on us. It's just hard. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time, Michaela. Um, I do hope that some of this valuable information that you shared with our listeners today will help a lot of couples in lockdown and help them survive till the end of June. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great. The Lasting Connection by Michaela Thomas is available now. Please rate and review our podcast if you enjoy what we do, and tell us how you're keeping the spark alive in your relationship on Facebook or tweet us at Reader's Digest UK. For more stories about health, food, and culture, subscribe to our newsletter at readersdigest.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time.